Welcome to Uncommon Knowledge. I'm Peter Robinson, professor of law at New York University, professor of law emeritus at the University of Chicago, and a fellow at the Hoover Institution. Richard Epstein is one of the most widely published and influential legal scholars of the last half century. And I'm not even making that up, am I, John? That is strictly speaking true. I think it's longer than half a century now. I think it's about a century. We'll come to, we'll come to you in a moment. Professor Epstein represents one half of the legal team on the popular podcast, Law Talk. Professor of Law at the University of California at Berkeley, John Yu served as Deputy Assistant Attorney General during the administration of President George W. Bush. Professor Yu is not quite as widely published as Professor Epstein, but he's getting there. Oh, Professor God. Yu is the other half of the legal team on Law Talk. Richard, John, Welcome. Good to be here, Thanks. and nice to have my son, John, 20 years my junior, <laughs> on the show with me. The big one first, <laughs> abortion. Let me set it up. Roe versus Wade in 1973 and Planned Parenthood versus Casey in 1992. In those two cases, the Supreme Court overturned virtually all prohibitions on abortion during the first trimester or 24 weeks of pregnancy. In 2018, the state of Mississippi enacted a law banning abortion after 15 weeks and was promptly sued. This past December, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. Dobbs is a state official in Mississippi who's the subject of the lawsuit, the defendant. The state of Mississippi explicitly urged the court to overturn Roe. Before the oral arguments in December, John Yu predicted that the court would decide the case narrowly, upholding Roe. Now, this decision isn't likely to come down until June, or this spring in any event. But the oral arguments have now taken place, and this is John's response to having heard the oral arguments. Nah, it's wrong. <laughs> unlike unlike Richard Epstein, I'm willing to admit I'm wrong. Wow. <laughs> I, wow. I, I'm, I can often be wrong. <laughs> All right. John, you no longer think that the court is going to hold, uh, uphold Roe narrowly. What do you think? What do you think? What happened during oral arguments that changed your view? Was that really me on that the recording? You. I'm yes, not so sure. You. The Chinese can do all kinds of amazing <laughs> things with technology now. So the main thing that changed was the oral argument. And you, we always caution, don't read too much into oral argument. But the, what I had thought before the oral argument was that Justice Kavanaugh and Chief Justice Roberts were not going to want to take such momentous step as overruling Roe so soon after three new justices joined the court during President Trump's administration. So they would take a more gradual, evolutionary, step-by-step -step approach, narrowing Roe, narrowing Roe, until there's a better time, a better case. But why, why did you have those two in particular in mind? The Chief Justice, John Roberts, and the newest, Brett Kavanaugh, no, no, Amy Coney Barrett is the newest, but the second newest, still a very new justice, Brett Kavanaugh. Why those two? Uh, part is because I think Justices Gorsuch and Amy Coney Barrett have been, I think, clearer in their pre-justice uh, careers, in their academic writings, and what they've done and said that would lead me to think that they think Roe is wrong. Cav Chief Justice Roberts, I think he has voted in several major cases, including the Obamacare case, which is also 10 years ago now, uh, in a way that he is willing, I think, to compromise on constitutional principle in order to try to keep the court out of politics, to try to reduce its profile in severe national debates, 
the biggest one of which I think has got to be abortion. And then Brett Kavanaugh, so far, in this very limited time he's been on the court, has often voted with Chief Justice Roberts, has not, I don't think, shown himself to be a real rules-driven, black and white type of thinker, but someone who likes to balance all the factors and consider the politics and the appearance of things, which is, it was a disappointment to me so far. And so the thing that happened in oral argument, which was uh, really surprising to me, is that Brett Kavanaugh in the oral arguments basically said, why should this court ever follow precedent when it's very wrong? And so instead of defending the idea of sticking with Roe, defending the idea of not upsetting things too much, he went out and said, well, Brown was wrong, we overruled Brown. Dred Scott was wrong, we overruled, and he went through all these major cases and he said, a lot Plessy of times- was wrong, Brown was the overruling. Did you misspeak there? Yes. Hmm? You said Brown, Brown was wrong. Plessy. Yeah, Brown overruled Pressy. Brown, oh, fine, yeah. go ahead. Okay. But he just went through and said, every time we issue a major decision, it's often overruling something that was wrong in the past. So why should we be bound by the star decisis, the precedential effect of Roe? That's, I think, that was actually the most significant information, I think, to come out of oral argument, was that Kavanaugh's kind of signaling that he's not necessarily going to be bound by Roe, that he's willing to consider this question afresh or anew, de novo, what lawyers would call it, and that puts his vote into play. If he's in play, if he might vote to strike down Roe, you don't need Chief Justice Roberts anymore because of the other justices. You could have usually a 5-4 case where it's Kavanaugh, Coney Barrett, Gorsuch, Alito, and Thomas. And is that what you now expect? Yeah, that's my prediction. All right. But okay. I'm happy to say I'm wrong again. Richard, this issue of precedent, stare decisis, stare decisis is Latin for... Let the comes, decision stand. Let the, do, do not, do not, do not overturn with settled law. All right. Two sound bites, if I may. Listen to these, and then I'm going to ask you a question. Am I going to incriminate myself? No, but, well, <laughs> we'll let you get to that. <laughs> First, Justice Sotomayor. Oh. Will this institution survive the stench that this creates in the public perception that the Constitution and its reading are just political acts? If people actually believe that it's all political, how will we survive? How will the court survive? Justice Kavanaugh. There's a string of them where the case has overruled precedent. Brown v. Board, uh, outlawed separate but equal. Uh, Baker v. Carr, which set the stage for one person, one vote. West Coast Hotel, which recognized the state's authority to regulate business. Miranda versus Arizona, which required police to give warnings when the right to about the right to remain silent and to have an attorney present to suspects in criminal custody. Lawrence v. Texas, which said that the state may not prohibit same-sex conduct. All right. One justice of the Supreme Court, Justice Sotomayor, says, we abide by precedent on this court, or we raise the possibility we produce the stench of looking political. And another justice of the Supreme Court, Brett Kavanaugh, says, just listen to this list of cases that this court overturned correcting incorrect decisions on major issues. Who's right? Well, they're both wrong. Um, in the following way, 
Can we just agree right now, John, that only Richard would have used that answer? Go right uh, ahead. Or well, he's going to tell you they're both right, but no, for the I wrong mean, reasons. No, but more like that. First of, all, with, first of all, with respect to Sotomayor, uh, what's source for the goose is source for the gander. And she has to face the question for people who think that Roe was wrongly decided. How can we allow a political act of this court to remain? It will undermine the confidence that everybody has in our public institutions. Can I say, I found this in your writings, Richard, prepping for this show. Wow. Richard Epstein, quote, Roe versus Wade, now the quotation begins, Roe versus Wade, quote, is one of the worst opinions ever written, close quote. Now, I could have said that in 1972 or three when I first wrote about Roe. Um, in the Supreme Court reviewer. I could have said it as recently as last year, uh, but the statement is surely true. I mean, to give you an idea of how utterly baffling it is, Harry Blackman, one of the more clueless justices on this thing, he cites a famous passage from Oliver Wendell Holmes saying that the Constitution is written for people of fundamentally different views, right? What Holmes meant by that quote is we therefore have to let the legislature control things um, and we do not allow specious claims of individual rights to take over as in Lochner against New York. Clueless Harry quotes it for the opposite proposition, uh, saying since we have fundamentally different persons, we have to recognize individual rights. And so the whole thing from the beginning gets it exactly backwards. Secondly, I mean, he tries to create this system of balance over trimesters, uh, giving each different sets of rights for each of them. You can't find that unless you want to torture the Equal Protection Clause in the way in which it goes. So the common view that everybody held at the time, that this was an unsuppressed act of judicial arrogance. And the reason why this is important, if you're going to play the overruling game, you don't want to overrule some petty little precedent on an inconsequential issue which may be right or wrong. This one, in terms of the six on the right, uh, faces the problem that it's just intellectually bankrupt from start to finish. And I have two views on this. Um, it's been and around. that's the Kavanaugh view. Yeah, no, well, that's nobody, what, we, nobody, that's nobody, at least what he seems to be suggesting. Yeah, yeah. Well, mm -hmm. the, the whole question is, do you believe that long-use stare decisis should override fundamental error? That's the choice that she's going to. Now, what's wrong with Kavanaugh is he doesn't have all the cases right. That is, in my view, you don't want to overrule Lochner in New York and create West Post Hotel versus Harris. Uh, what that does is it creates this enormous federal bureaucracy, which leads to such grotesque statutes as the Fair Labor Standards Act and so forth. You don't need all of that. And so what you have to do is you have to go every, down every particular case on the list and you come up with the following really serious problem is you have to make individual judgments as to whether or not the decision that was overruled was correct or the decision that's doing the overruling is correct. And I'm not only going to you know, allow this, I think it's probably true if you're talking about Presley against Brown v. Board, but it's not true with respect to every other case. So what really has okay, to... Okay, so suppose we just take Plessy. What is that? Is Plessy... 58 <laughs> years. Plessy is an... Is Plessy... Plessy, Plessy is a decision in f that that provides constitutional basis for segregation. It yeah. formalizes mm -hmm. Jim Crow. Intellectually, was it as contemptible as Roe? Um, Morally, it's repugnant. Yeah, I mean, he got everything wrong. Got everything wrong. Uh, but, but, uh, more wrong than well, Roe was in terms uh, I of the original think, uh, well, understanding. It, it's okay. really so we all, we agree that Plessy was catastrophically bad as a moral matter and as a, a legal and matter, as a legal matter but, yeah. and that Brown was quite right to overturn it 58 years later. But no, it's more complicated than that, like everything, <laughs> right? Uh, if you go back and you look at Come in and it. save me. Why? Well, first, I, I would well, say, let me Peter, just explain, put, put, no, put, morality, I mean, okay. put morality out yeah, of I, it. I want to okay. Just what's constitutionally correct. Look, and and we'll come long, back to you yeah, in a second. How long I do you let, er, let well, Richard's just, point is right. He's, so Richard's point is how long do you let a constitutional error 
survive in the interest of just stability. Yeah, but the, what I want to do is to give a little bit of the historic, historiography of Plessy. I'm not going to defend it. Uh, what case and what jurisdiction did Judge Brown rely on in order to say that separate but equal was legal? I don't have a clue. Uh, well, I do. I See, probably it, knew when I was 21 I, no, was studying it, it, okay, yeah, There's it, no it, way it, you would have known that. It's this. a decision <laughs> by Lemuel Shaw, a famous judge and very much an abolitionist and so forth, in a case called Roberts against the city of Boston, which upheld the principle of separate and equal, and that was the dominant case which was cited in Plessy, a northern decision by a liberal judge. And so, you know, when you're trying to figure out what's wrong with that, you have to go and figure this out. And there's a historiography explanation to it. It turns out Shaw knew that the Boston legislature or the city council was going to overturn this anyhow. So he decided if I strike it down, I don't have to go into constitutional adventurism because it will be corrected by legislation. Then you go forward, up, you get to Plessy in 1896. There's no Southern legislature that's going to reverse it the way the Boston would. Mm. And so what you do is you're playing this game. But what's wrong with the decision analytically is what this guy does is he says famously, we are great believers in freedom of association, right? And if black people don't want to associate with white people, that's just fine. The problem is this is forced segregation, which prevents voluntary interaction. So the mistake in the opinion was to sort of treat this decision as though it's assuring voluntary choices. When Plessy, I don't know if you know, it was a rigged case. I would go farther than that. I would say the Constitution just doesn't take account of people on the basis of race. Well, it's but, a much simpler principle well, and that saying, to but, uphold a state law that says you're allowed to identify okay, people boys. by race and treat them differently. Well, it turns out it's so, 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 so it's okay, we've got an, uh, that's enough on, that's all I want to hear on <laughs> Well, it's, <laughs> because it's television, Richard. Um, it's complicated. So there's a bad case, bad decision. I believe that's the moral question. It's bad mm -hmm. law, yeah. and it gets overturned 58 years later. later. The question now before the court is whether to overturn Roe 49. 40, 48, 40, would be 49. 49 years later. This week. And so, so John, the, how do you handle the question of precedent? So that's, that's By the way, that point. seems to be the only the yes, only argument. That is a good point. I was in, just going to point ahead, that out. That point. One you thing about the, the other thing about the oral argument is that no one actually defended Roe on the merits. I think Richard's right. When Roe came out, most constitutional law scholars thought this is ridiculous. Or even uh, John Hart Ely, who was a Stanford law professor, one then of the most prominent the liberal professors, uh, he thought Roe wasn't even constitutional law, he said. He has famously said, uh, Roe is not constitutional law and doesn't even try to be constitutional it's law. Wages of Crying Wolf was the yeah. title of this article. It's a great piece. My article on the same <laughs> subject had a very... Which had a very boring title. Well, was it my title? <laughs> compared to John Hart Ely. Yes, it was Substantive Due Process by Another Name was put on it by... Well, it's not a bad title, actually. But it turns out it was actually Phil Turlin's, not my title. <laughs> All right. Well, let me carry let on. Me, yeah, yeah. So, um, you could always say, and I think this is the view of some of the justices, we shouldn't pay any attention to precedent at all. Let's just get it right. Um, especially because we're in a world, and this does uh, echo what uh, Richard was saying, especially in a world where no one can overrule us. The only way to overrule a mistake by the Supreme Court is to get two thirds of Congress to pass a constitutional mm -hmm. amendment that's then approved by three quarters of the legislature, which we barely ever do, and isn't really gonna be used to overturn Supreme Court cases one by one. And so if you have this world where no one can correct you the way a legislature could, right. then the Supreme Court is the only one who can correct its own mistakes. So why should we give any deference, any acceptance to the past Supreme Courts that were wrong? And I think that's one principal position. 
And that's roughly Justice Thomas's position. Yes, Thomas and I think Alito and Gorsuch. I think and those three justices. Barrett. Yeah, maybe Barrett. She, so Barrett wrote a very important law review article before she went on the bench about precedent. And she basically said, I think, if it's a really important constitutional question, precedent should not uh, no, cause you to decide. I'm coming to Richard, I promise. But, let me, but the other point I want to make was, so we're in a world where none of the justices, not even the three liberal justices, Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan, defended Roe on the merits. Instead, all the arguments were, as you said, about precedent. Just, is it, as you, the clip you played from Sotomayor said, are we just going to look too political? Are we going to look too uh, brazen in our politics if we overrule Roe? That's all that this is about, I think, at this point, because no one thinks Roe was correct as an original matter. And if that's true, then you have to, and this is where I think Richard and I disagree. I'm more on the Thomas line of things. I don't think precedent should count. Richard, I think you actually do pay some attention yeah, to attention, instability right. and institutional politics and so on. But I think, look, Roe, if you think Roe's wrong, why should you keep anything you know to be wrong in place? Can I basically answer this question? Please. All right. well, the first thing that is you ask, why do I think it's going to come out the way John predicted? It's because Meaning nobody... overturning Roe. Yes. Nobody on the left made the defense off the court. The right of a woman to control her body, the privacy interests, and non-discrimination rules were raised very commonly in all the arguments. The Supreme Court, none of the three did it. But there's also something else about correction. Uh, the most important statute to worry about is a statute passed in New York and in California and other places which says the following. If Roe is overruled, we will now adopt it as a legislative decision for the state that we're involved in. So what happens is you can correct Roe if you leave it, right? But you can correct it if you overturn it. And to the extent that you argue that this is a political process decision, you now have evidence that the process works in liberal states for doing so what you want. It is a terrifically important and thoroughly obvious point that nevertheless gets overlooked, as best I can tell, again and again and again. Yes. If the court strikes down Roe, it does not make abortion illegal anywhere. It, it simply it returns to the 50-state legislatures a matter of criminal law. Which is which where, is where state legislatures... Okay. Not just that, but where... Most life and death decisions are made invested. The right. death penalty, euthanasia, these are all decisions. Well, no, the, in the death penalty the, cases, the Supreme the Court state. has decided to take it over, right? And they had the following fiascos. They yeah. had a case in which there was a very heavy man who sort of raped a seven-year-old girl or something like that. And uh, the question was whether or not he could be punished with death, cruel and unusual punishment. And the argument came out that, well, you can't have the death penalty for rape cases. One of these categorical rules utterly inconsistent with the framework of the Eighth Amendment, right? And so uh, they said, oh, it never happened. Then it turned out somebody found a case in which an execution had taken place, or a new statute had been passed on this very topic, and they said, well, you can't say that mores have changed so it never happened because it changed. The Supreme Court refused to acknowledge the case or deal with anything associated with its operation. So uh, if you want to talk about dangerous precedents, there's no structural evidence whatsoever to say that the death penalty is prohibited by the cruel and unusual uh, punishment clause. And, you know, so you have all these constant kinds of tensions. That should go as well, and yet there's no movement whatsoever to overturn it. Richard, on a recent episode of Law Talk, Richard Epstein, Ooh. quote, the really important debate on this subject, this subject being abortion, is one that I think the anti-abortion forces are winning. It concerns the development of the fetus, cell differentiation, the creation of organs, and all the rest of that stuff. 
an inimitable <laughs> phrasing by Richard. You're making a political argument here. I'm this is the justices. The justices should not take any of this into account. Is that correct or no, incorrect? No. Let me tell you what I'm doing. All right. You return it back to the states, right? Right. The states have to decide what to do. Right. And some states, like New York, have decided to basically institutionalize Roe. But in other states, you're going to have a political argument, and the argument is going to turn around what's the status of the fetus. And if you start looking at the way at which cell differentiation takes place, consciousness takes place, and so forth, it's more difficult to say that abortion looks like cutting off a fingernail of no legal consequence whatsoever. So when I wrote about this in 1973, before this guy was much of a lawyer, um, what I, I was around. Yeah, I, I, did, but I don't I said, remember yeah, much. At the age of two, were you reading his work? <laughs> yeah, yes, Probably yeah. you were. Yeah, but I said the problem that you have with the Roe decision in the trimesters is to say a principle of legality requires a sharp point of differentiation. And viability doesn't give you that or anything of the sort. So I said the only principle that actually works is conception. And that makes me into a Catholic theologian. You said that in 1973? Yes. <laughs> and, and so what, what happened... What did the Catholic is, Church say when they heard this well, news? Well, look, I mean, they didn't say much of anything, <laughs> but it turns out I think they're right. I mean, I have mm. this weird situation is that, you know, I have no particular religious beliefs. I'm a Jewish guy, sort of, maybe. Uh, but when you actually go to the question and you look at the theological work and strip it of the theology and just ask about the political question or the moral question, it turns out that their arguments could be recast in moral terms without the religious overhang, and they're going to have some purchase. As incidentally, Catholic theologians themselves insist it is not a specifically religious question. And look, they are right. Really? Yes. So I yes. find myself yes. defending fundamental, of fundamentalist Christians in all sorts of cases, you know, having to do with right. dressmakers so, and things like that. No, the better, or one way to rephrase it is, if you're not sure, if, as you said, lots of people in society have very oh. different views, what's the better way to make the decision? Five justices of the Supreme Court making a universal, one rule fits all, you know, omniscient uh, imposition, of right, abortion, life begins at this point, and we know, and so on and so forth. Or do you let you know, people of good faith and goodwill with all different moral views and religions participate in the political process and vote and persuade each other the to adopt the is, rules state by state? Well, John is wrong again. <laughs> Some of the time, but none of the time. The problem with John's argument is very simple and very profound. You have an argument which means there's no individually protected rights if it's always subject well, to political Well, there's the Bill of Rights. Well, yeah. and the question then is what falls in the Bill of Rights. Yeah. And so the central problem in political theory is always which things do you commit to the legislature and which things do you commit to individual rights. Mm -hmm. And we do not have a corner solution on that problem. So everybody... Hold on. But in the Dobbs be. case, yeah? we're pretty sure this should go back to the states. Well, what did I say? I agree okay. with that. So you both suspect now, you're both predicting that the court will overturn Roe outright, correct? So here's a question, last question on this, because Lord knows there's other material to cover here. Last question, how will the Chief Justice vote? And here's what I have in mind. Hmm. I can't quote it exactly, although the, the two of you being the two of you may be able to. He dissented, the Chief Justice dissented from Obergefell, yes. the decision in which, who wrote that? Uh, Kennedy, Justice Kennedy. Justice Kennedy discovered a right to gay marriage. And the last line, as I recall, of the Chief Justice's dissent read as follows. Who do we believe we are? Or who does this court think it is? And it's the same, it's exactly the argument 
that you just made. Yes. Who are we, this handful of people wearing black robes, to be making profound decisions for the nation? So wouldn't, on that very argument that he, that he states in Obergefell, in this ringing dissent in Obergefell, wouldn't that compel him to overturn Roe? That's Only a chief justice when he's not being a politician. Yes. So no, when uh, he's uh, being uh, a politician, if you listen to oral argument, yeah. What he, tr he did not say that in oral argument. No, he didn't. In oral argument, he actually tried to find a compromise that would allow the court to uphold this law at the same time keeping Roe intact. And nobody went for it. Well, nobody went for it. That was the other interesting thing from oral argument. He threw that out there. At least the three liberals should have wrapped their arms to, around to it. Retain the principle of viability, but roll it back from 24 weeks well, to 15 well, Yeah, it wouldn't be viability no, he because... No, didn't even say that. He just it was said, even worse. Yeah, it doesn't say? make any sense he what he said tried. that the, the, the trimester yeah. stuff was dicta. Was what? Dicta. Didn't doesn't matter It doesn't, doesn't matter count anymore. as law, yeah. which uh, is just a preposterous re misreading of the case. So what does he decide in this case? So well, he, he's going to try to keep it at 15 weeks. Yeah, so what he'll do is he'll say... We'll uphold. It doesn't make any logical sense based on the precedent. He's right. basically going to throw out all the precedent. He has to. The chief. Yeah, he'll have to throw out Roe. He'll have to throw out Casey, and he'll have to say Casey's the 1992 case that reaffirmed Roe, and created the you know, undue burden standard. The, now mm. the test is, can the state regulate uh, abortion without placing an undue burden on the woman's right? So he's going to have to toss most of that out and instead say, we're going to allow a state to regulate up to 15 weeks of pregnancy, but not before 15 weeks. But there's no rationale that makes sense that justifies that. He's just so. Gonna... So how does this play out? I, I actually, I, give me a little. He's going to be a clerk to the court. Range? So is he yeah. going? There's the, the conference room, which I've I've seen. The conference table is quite small. These people are about this far apart How from each other. How did you make it past security? It's designed to stop well, people like Well, he was like a nominee. <laughs> he was an executive. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was on the short list. But like Richard was, So, I so hear. does the chief justice make that <laughs> argument to his colleagues on the court at the conference table? Ah, so the so way so when, it, when, it, when it becomes clear to him that mm. he has five justices who are going to vote to overturn Roe, does he say, oh, well, I'm, I may as well throw in with them? Or does he write a dissent? I think there's a formal, there's a, the formal process and the informal process. Mm -hmm. I think it's going to be decided by the informal process. Formally, you're right. They have the old argument. They've already voted. They have a meeting usually that week, the Friday at the, of that week, in that conference this room. This decision has already been made? Yeah, yeah. They're just writing it out now. So they will go in order of seniority with the Chief Justice going first. So Chief Justice, might, Chief Justice Roberts might throw this idea out, saying, I'm not going to vote to strike this law down, but I would be willing to say blah, blah, blah. And then they go in order, and by the end, you have the vote. And then the Chief Justice, if he's in the majority, he'll assign the opinion. If he's not, then, Chief, then this is amazing. Justice, thing. Justice Thomas, Thomas gets to assign the opinion. Who I would hope he would keep it for himself. Well, but then there's an informal process which occurs after this, which is then there's all kinds of discussion. This is where Richard this really is. They're, is they're in and out of each other's chambers? Well, they're going to talk by memos on the phone through in person, clerks. negotiate through the clerk's negotiation. And you could easily see it's not uncommon for the votes to change in that process oh, of getting from the first vote to the written but opinion. But I, I think end. in this case, um, I, I have a different response. Everybody's set in concrete. They really? You think so? I think they Even been, the Chief uh, Justice? I, oh. I think in terms of their basic substantive provisions, nobody's going to persuade anybody. It's all going to be political compromise. Do I give up something I believe to get something I want? Yes, but that's all going to take So you get a majority decision signed by five. But it's not... A they dissent will signed not by let, three. And, and, and then a concurring decision. That's the one. I think that's and the, the, just, the chief writes his own dissent. Yes, uh, no, a, concur oh. a, a partial concurrence, partial. Dissent. If you believed in a woman's right to choose, what you are hoping for 
is the Chief Justice Roberts somehow works some kind of voodoo Ma magic Ma on Brett Kavanaugh to say, oh, you may not look like Roe, but politically this is the wrong time to, you know, <sighs> blow open, right? Blow open the jurisprudential right. universe and invite the, you know, all the furies of the political yeah, system upon us. So just... Just please don't overturn Roe this time. But that's going to be a private right. conversation. Yes, that's all going to be. So and wait a minute, but that, but that horse Suppose, trading, suppose, su suppose. Here's what the chief justice said, mm. says, Brett. Here's what could happen. You remember the vitriol during your mm -hmm. nomination hearings? Do you remember the anger? That will engulf not the Dirksen caucus room in the United States Senate. That won't engulf the nation. But by the way, and, and we the Supreme Court. That we no, can, which is really no, no, the real yeah. problem that's, is that's, that's an argument. argument. No, that's exactly what it is. The argument, the mm -hmm. argument will yes. go both ways. Yeah. The problem is, if he does it, he will be called a turncoat by the conservative yeah. movement, somebody who betrayed everything. So there's going to be help to pay no matter which way it goes. I remember sometimes uh, a famous lawyer told me, he says, I get hell if I do this, I get hell if I do that. What I conclude from this is I may as well do the right thing. And that's what we hope Justice <laughs> yeah, Kavanaugh but, but, replies to the chief. Yeah, is that and, correct? But yes, but let me also mention what I think is wrong with Obergefell. Um, no, no, Richard. Yes, in one sense, because it's okay, critical, All right. is that he basically said this is a Lochner-type case, but they're hugely different. Lochner had nothing to do with health and safety, whereas the abortion cases did. So he didn't even understand... He being Anthony Kennedy. No, just, he no, being uh, Roberts. Chief he Justice didn't Robert. understand the traditional cases because <clears throat> he didn't have any idea what the police power was right. So as I said about John, you can't take the always democratic or always individual yeah. right stuff. That's he right. didn't get the line drawn in the right place because he's so anti-Lochner that he simply didn't understand the logic of the case. And that's a John, serious intellectual weakness. I am now required, because Richard exceeded his one sentence uh, limit, oh, I am now required never... to ask you to explain for, to listeners, including this one, remind me of Lochner. Ah. Well, Richard is mentioning Lochner again and again. Just remind so us of the This case. is one, Lochner's kind you of a shorthand. All right, go ahead. Ah. <laughs> so, no, go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> no, no, so Lochner refers to this period before the New Deal, right. when the Supreme Court struck down a large variety of regulations of the economy, uh, regulation of contract. Yeah, no, 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 it was no, no. State, well, both federal and state laws that inter interfered rights. with contracts, mortgages, all kinds of economic regulation. The, and so what happened is uh, the court stuck to its guns all the way between right, the, pretty much the Civil War all the way to the New Deal. In, in Lochner, the court is asserting the right of private contract. Yes. Yes. Okay. So right. Except a, when health and safety are at issue. Okay. But Lochner's, so the hard thing is, I think, constitutionally, is um, if the, for a long time people criticized Lochner because they said, oh, the courts are just imposing their own mm. personal views of what's wrong. good political philosophy or what's good economics. Versus right. Why doesn't the political process just decide how many hours bakers can work on the mm. floor of a bakery per week. Um, is that really any different than Roe versus Wade, where the justices are saying, oh, well, we think individual rights includes a right to an abortion. Just like 100 years ago, the justices said, individual rights includes the right to work as much as I want. Right. Uh, and so that's the, so I think this is fair. Um, conservatives actually used to be the ones who used to say, the courts should just be out of this business this entirely. This is Bob Bork and Nino yeah. Scalia. Yeah, they were saying, just let the political process decide all of that. Get, so the re reason Richard doesn't like that is because it treats Roe and Lochner as the same problem. And, and they're not. Richard's claiming, oh no, there is an individual right to pursue economic liberty that's very different 
than these newer rights like abortion trying to murder and so off on. an offspring, right? I see. So, I, I see. mean, it's correct. So, you don't get But this is very controversial. Well, I know it's controversial. Being, you are very controversial, but Richard, on I many things. But remember I said Waste Coast <laughs> Hotel, which overruled these things, was a wrong decision. That's what I said. And what you have to do is you've got to have a theory. The problem about the Chief Justice, he's such an institutionalist, he has no normative theory of what the Constitution itself requires. This is, this is actually a good way to explain the difference between the new Trump justices and the older conservative justices. Because the older conservative justices, who are very much of the Bork Scalia school, would say... The older are. Uh, Alito, I would Justice say. Well, we but also know. Scalia, Scalia. Uh, people like Scalia. that. Scalia. Not Thomas, actually. But, Not Thomas. But they would no. say... Uh, but also but Roberts, Roberts. Uh, probably Kavanaugh. They would say courts should just get out of the business of value judgments, of avoiding policy disputes. All that should be for the Congress and the states. And the main goal of all of this is to limit the damage that the judiciary does. So we must be restrained. Yeah, and I the, don't new, that. the newer justices who I think have little idols of Richard Epstein in there. At least bobbleheads. <laughs> yes, at least the bobblehead. They, they would say, no, uh, um, there are certain fundamental values in the Constitution and we should go out and enforce them. And we shouldn't pay deference to Congress or the states. The main problem of Roe is it just got the fundamental value wrong. It's not abortion, it's these other kinds of rights like free speech and political activity and religion and gun rights. So, that I, so the new okay. justices are willing to be much more activist well, than the older conservative justices. But what happens is I'm more willing. When I wrote my book on takings back in 1985, right. the central takeaway, go to page 281, just in case you're curious, is, oh, by the way, the New Deal is unconstitutional. And all on the individual grounds, right? And on the federalism argument, although that was not the part of the takings book. That's what made me into a pariah, right? Well, the best part of it was the current sitting president of the United States took Richard's book no, and would yeah, flash yeah. it in front of nominees to the Supreme Court and say, do you agree with this with madness? This nonsense, with yeah. this madness? <laughs> yeah, that's this, a priceless This, this was moment. Joe Biden, and this was essentially before Clarence Thomas. <laughs> yes. In the case of uh, Epstein and the ability to have zoning laws. He took the book out from underneath his desk and said, anybody who believes anything that's written in this book is unfit to sit on the Supreme Court. And Thomas, Richard said, I couldn't agree more. But private property is written in the Constitution, and that was a revelation to Joe Biden. All right. Speaking of whom, the Biden mandates. The Biden administration imposed a mandate on businesses that employ 100 or more workers to require the workers to receive vaccinations. Just last week, we're talking on January 20th. Just last week, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in the case, challenging those mandates, and then the court handed down its decision 48 hours later. It blocked the Biden mandate on most employees of large companies, but permitted the mandate to stand on some 10 million healthcare workers. The Wall Street Journal editorialized as follows. Quote, the split decision counts as a welcome setback for the overarching administrative state, but not as welcome as it might have been. Close quote. Amen. So why do we come, why, why do they produce well, a split decision? Well, let me decision? tell you what the problem is, and then I'll tell you what the All distinction is. Right. The problem is that there's a chronic shortage of healthcare workers, and this is going to result in more deaths by striking down the industry. Why do they come to the decision? Because of what I said before, the regard of the health 
the mandate for hospital workers is a health and safety issue uh, for which you need narrower statutory authorization, whereas everything else was not within the purview of the emergency powers that were given with respect to OSHA. And so they did a kind of a doctrinal split. And let's put it this way. But it was way. a reasonable split. Well, let's put it this way. Yeah. I think they were wrong, but if they'd done the split the other way, they would have been mad. And yeah. so, so mistaken, not insane. All right. You'd agree, John? <laughs> So I, I, I read it a little differently than Richard. I'm not sure about the consequences for the pandemic and how we're coming to it, but it's just the two mandates, they're two separate mandates and they were done under different grants of power. Yes. And so the first one, the nationwide mandate on that all employees. OSHA. Uh, yeah, the yeah. OSHA mandate. Dictat. The court didn't actually even reach any constitutional question. They could have, and some of the, the three most conservative justices, Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch, wanted to reach a constitutional question. But instead, the six conservatives agreed that Congress and the OSHA law, which is about workplace safety, it's really passed about to deal with asbestos and that kind of stuff yeah. in the, on factory floors and offices. The court just said, Congress didn't give you the power. You, Joe Biden, you, the White House, you, OSHA, Amen. to require vaccines. It doesn't, and they went a little far. They said, it doesn't give you the power to regulate problems which aren't really unique to the workplace. So COVID's uh, something you can get in the okay. supermarket, you could get it at home. But healthcare workers are very different. different well, yeah, the healthcare workers is about the spending power, which is very different. The spending power, court has always been very deferential, which is when the government spends its money, it's allowed to place conditions on how the money's used. So the Congress uh, here gave, you know, basically funds most of health, has taken over the healthcare system in the country. And the government said, if you take federal health care dollars, then you have to get your employees vaccinated. This, of course, when they had the individual. The courts have always been yeah, hands no, off on but, There's but, no, because there's but, no legal look, I'm going to bring back history to John. <laughs> I said back when they talked about the various Medicaid yeah. mandates in the health care case, I said the Supreme Court. case. Oh, the Obama, Obama, Obama case. 10 years ago. ago. Yeah, right. 10 I said ago. the Supreme Court is going to balk on the question as to whether or not you could tell a state that if you don't take these additional funds, you're going to have to lose all of your existing funds. John you were laughed, wrong. John laughed <laughs> all the way to the bank. I was right on that No, one. you were wrong. It turns out they <laughs> struck down the condition. Right. Yes. And so, I mean, he never apologized publicly. I will take it now. <laughs> but it doesn't matter. The point is unconstitutional conditions depends on the level of deference, which is John said. And in this case, they gave a lot of it. All right. A question that arises from oral arguments. I'm going to take a moment to set this up. You may think I'm being flippant. I really and truly am not. I'll get Shucks. to the question in a moment. <laughs> A few moments during oral arguments in this mandate case, Justice Kagan insists that vaccinations are, quote, the best way to prevent spread, close quote. This is totally untrue. She's Delta and Okay. Justice Sotomayor claims that Omicron is filling hospitals with children, quote, many on ventilators. Again, totally untrue. Omicron, very mild, almost no effect on the overwhelming number of children. She's just wrong. Justice Breyer. It would be unbelievable that it could be in the public interest to suddenly stop these vaccinations, close quote. But the mandate targeted only about 25% of the population in the private workforce. Most had already been vaccinated. And so the mandate, Holman Jenkins writes in the Wall Street Journal, even if approved, the Biden mandate is destined to have a negligible, almost invisible impact on either the vaccination rates or the unfolding of the pandemic, close quote. He's wrong. And here's the question. He's too Justice, optimistic. Justice... Justice Breyer yeah. is mistaken, in the, at least he seems to be badly mistaken in saying it couldn't possibly be in the public interest to suspend these vaccinations. Look, in, hold on, let me ask the question. The question is this, 
What do we make of Supreme Court justices when they very clearly have not the slightest idea what they're talking about? Well, when they have even less information, oh, well, you wouldn't expect them all to be epidemiologists, but when they have less information than the informed layman can gather simply by keeping up with the news each day, what do we make of these people well, when they don't know what they're doing? Well, I'm gonna answer the following way. They basically are completely irresponsible. But even Holman Jensen doesn't quite get it right. What you have to understand is that if you give this vaccine, particularly to young people, it actually has serious potentials for adverse harm. The evidence is now beginning to accumulate that you could get myocarditis, a serious disease if you're a male between 20 and 40. There's some nascent evidence that maybe it will change menstruation cycles for women. There are all sorts of, all sorts of other collateral consequences that might happen. And so what's going on is they're making a mandate on the theory that it's risk-free when it's not. And then they systematically ignore the power of natural immunities, which is widely established. And so you don't want to ever require a vaccination of anybody who's got natural immunity. So what's really going on there is the three liberal judges are inexcusably wrong, but even the people on the other side of this thing don't keep up with the uh, serious literature on this. It's a national scandal. Okay. I, I just say so little... So my question is, sorry, we just heard Justice Sotomayor say, how does the court survive the stench <laughs> of illegitimacy? Mm -hmm. And then she produces a question during oral arguments of two weeks later that shows she has no idea what she's talking about. Does that somehow, should they just shut up and should, we, should they stop making oral arguments, uh, to stop taping them? <laughs> no, they should make them. We what? want the court oh, to lose legitimacy. The That's what they're doing. I actually think it's, uh, has a, it's a, the same flaw that we saw in the discussion of the abortion cases, in that the three uh, liberal justices are almost talking themselves out of the conversation. They're not mm. really seriously engaging serious. with the majority. They're not, they're not, it's, it's, and I think this also is a product of, as you started the show, this six justice conservative supermajority. They don't, you know, they're not gonna pay attention to the three liberal justices if they continue to talk this way and act this way. They're not really trying to persuade these three liberal justices. They're trying to persuade the six, other six, to try to make a majority. I think they're really pitching their statements to the public. They're really, they're protesting. The problem here is that they're not really making legal arguments. None of those are legal arguments. They're well, almost they're... acting like they're the head of the CDC. <laughs> Whereas the majority, what they're question, notice the majority, I, I don't know if you remember this, but. For example, Justice Alito said several times, I'm not questioning whether vaccines work. I'm not questioning yeah. vaccine policy. For the majority, as it was in Roe, the, the question is who decides the question? Right. And they're actually both trending the same way, which Those is- Those are legal questions. Yes, yeah, but who no decides, no, not no. what the facts are, right. who, what's the best policy. I, again, this but is where we they're gonna They're pushing the decision in both cases, I think, to the states, to the decentralized decisions of- The majority. The states. Yes. Yeah, the majority of the states. Businesses, you and me, when we decide what risks we want to accept when we go into coffee shops or schools but or whatever. But this is exactly Hold the on, same Richard. We, I just am, go I, I am going to exercise what is some lovely Latin phrase for uh, uh, the main right. Exactly. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Voting rights legislation. Oh, we can't go on. Again, this takes a, a moment or two to set up, but, I'm going, uh, but I'll do it. The legal matter that's not before the Supreme Court, but that might have been, I'll get to that, the Democrats in Congress and the administration attempted to enact two pieces of legislation, both of which had already cleared the House. 
Richard Epstein on each. Quote, the Freedom to Vote Act contains a long list of reforms, and the John R. Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act would require preclearance from the federal government before a state introduced any changes to its voting practices. Close quote. Last night, again, we're speaking January 20th, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer of New York attempted to eliminate the filibuster to ram through these two pieces of legislation, two Democrats, two members of his own party, Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Kristen Sinem Kirsten Sinema of Arizona, voted to uphold the filibuster and killed these two pieces of legislation. Okay, first the constitutional question. This is the federal government inserting itself into the voting procedures. If those two pieces of legislation had been enacted, would the Supreme Court have upheld them? Should the Supreme Court have upheld them? No. John looks puzzled on this. No, I could give... Go, go, okay. you go first. We'll give John, John no, the time I to mean, think. What it is is a divided authority over this thing, in which the state passes is certain rules, but the Congress has the power to override them on certain limited issues. Right. One of those issues that's not in the Congress' power to override is turns out to be eligibility to vote, prisoners and things of that sort. So what will happen is, if it ever got to the Supreme Court, uh, there would be some provisions that would survive, some would be struck down. It would be a complicated mess. And, and then you'd result. have to ask the question, if you only have part of it, but not all of it, do you allow severability so that some survives and one does not? I wrote in another paper, which you didn't quote, saying that I thought that most of this thing was fatally flawed and that the whole thing would, in effect, be, be struck down. Uh, but remember, the problem about the entire constitutional system is the non-voting, non-deliberative executive uh, uh, electoral college that we put together is not an originalist device. It was supposed to be a deliberative body in each of the states. But we changed these automatic ballots because it was the only thing that worked. And states, state, state legislatures And what happens is they now want to change the rules so that the state legislatures don't control the voting system. It's a huge constitutional revolution. The Democrats say, well, these guys are going to subvert the votes because there were some suggestions early on that the legislatures at the ninth hour, the 11th hour, should strike down the popular vote and insert itself because it had that power. No state legislature was willing to do this because we have what I would call a customary constitution in which the only thing you can do as a legislature is to say that the party with the most votes is going to win. You have discretion to whether you do it state by state, an entire state, all or nothing, or by district. But you don't have the power to essentially insert yourself after the process is run. And this kind of customary constitution is absolutely critical to the continuity of the government. And one thing that's wrong with originalism as a kind of comprehensive theory is when these things take place by way of evolution after the original design and flat contradiction to it, the last thing you want to do is to blow it up and go back to a design that was known to fail. And in this case, the heroine of this thing, the best justice on this has always been Elena Kagan. So wait a minute. You, if you'd been in the Senate last night, you would have voted to pass this legislation? Oh, no. The filibuster is completely different. That's an internal Senate rule. It can do whatever it wants, and it's not even reviewable. I think I'm correct on this yeah. uh, in any way, shape, right, or right, right. the court. I would never get rid of the filibuster. You're in favor of the filibuster. Strongly so, because I think major institutional changes need a supermajority legitimacy, just as you do for constitutional amendments. And to have 50 Democrats and a vice president go one way when every Republican is opposed is a political legitimacy disaster. Hi, John. Let, me, let me defend originalism a little bit from Richard's uh, dastardly attack. Dastardly. So I think if one thing is neither of these bills uh, can constitutionally control presidential elections. 
because the constitutional text says the electors are chosen in the manner designed by, by the, the state, state legislatures. That's in the text. That's of the in the text. That is so none of these bills are allowed to affect the selection of the president. The provision Richard's talking about says that Congress, that states generally set the rules for their elections. Congress can override them for congressional elections as to the time, place, and manner of the taking. So that's the originalist in me. It's like, let's just start with the constitutional provisions. They make that separation. So uh, this can only really apply to congressional elections. You're correct. And then some of these things that are in the bills are not really related to time, place, and manner, Mm -hmm. and some are. So I think, I actually disagree a little bit, Richard. I think a lot of the things in the legislation are time, place, and manner and would be upheld would by be the upheld, courts. Right. But there are th- weird things, like for example, voter ID. Mm-hmm. Uh, right? they, I, I take it the bills don't, or, or, or prohibit using voter certain ID, yeah, yeah, certain yeah. kinds of voter, like driver's licenses. Yeah, you can't do that. I'm not sure if that's a time, place, and manner restriction or not. It's not. I, I, I just don't know. I mean, but it's a case of first impression for the courts. They've generally upheld time. Um, they've upheld voter ID laws at the state How level. How would you have voted in the Senate last night? Ah, so in the filibuster, I also am a little different than Richard. I agree with him completely. It's a Senate rule. It's up to the Senate. The courts will not review it. I've never really been sure whether the filibuster is a good idea or not. I do agree that there's a certain need for institutional stability. But the setup of the Senate itself by being anti-democratic is a very strong stabilizing force already. But I don't think the filibuster is going to change. I worked in the Senate. I don't think it's going to change. I, I think that uh, Manchin and Cinema are actually you know, taking the heat for a lot of their other colleagues oh, sure. who also Absolutely. don't want to get rid of the filibuster. Right. Yeah, um, and no, Cinema's that's quite right because I remember 10 years ago when George, or 15 years ago when George W. Bush was president, and there were a lot of things he would have liked to have done, but for the Senate filibuster, and some of the same characters who are attacking it were then defending it. Chuck Schumer. Chuck Schumer. Yeah. Yeah. All right, January 6th, last big topic here. Oh, I love it. <laughs> Lots of legal matters connected with the House committee mm-hmm. investigating the riot in the Capitol on January 6th of 2021. Just yesterday, the Supreme Court refused a request from former President Trump. I've got about three of these. So I'm just mentioning we will want to move through these fairly quickly if we can. Supreme Court refused a request from former President Trump to block the release of certain White House records connected with January 6th. The court rejects Trump's claim of executive privilege and the National Archives begins delivering thousands of pages of documents. As I understand it, they began delivering this to the January 6th committee staff within a few hours. No doubt. All right, what, what, what are the issues here? Did the court do right? Was Trump out of line to make this claim of a former president claims executive privilege? No, I mean, I th- just briefly, what I were think the he was here? gonna lose, but it's actually an open constitutional question that yes. the court has not decided. So there's this thing called executive privilege, which the court has upheld in the Nixon Watergate tapes case amongst others, where the court has said, um, we are gonna protect the right of a president to communicate with his advisors or her advisors, to get advice, to shield it from the other branches being able to discover it. And I think just like we would not allow the president to say, I wanna know what Chief Justice Roberts is saying to his clerks, or Leah Klingy is saying to her clerks, or what senators say to their staff. There's this kind of, and the court said, part of that's so the executive branch can function properly, and part of it is so that we have good decision making, so you have candid airing of views. So what happens when the president is no longer in office and you have someone new in office? 
does the privilege continue? So you have a political problem is that when you have presidents of different parties, there's always going to be this mm-hmm. temptation right. by, say, a Republican yeah, to say, I'm going to hand over all the stuff that the Democratic president was saying with his or her aides because it's going to help me politically. Right. Um, that's one issue that the court has never really decided, which is, does someone, like Trump, yeah, not, yeah, does someone like Trump, who's the past president, have some claim still? Or is it still up to just to Biden? Because Biden's the president now, President Biden can decide to release information or to keep it secret, covered by executive privilege. The second argument, and this was actually the thing that turned the case, was that the Supreme Court also said in the Watergate tapes case, I think wrongly, but they said, but there are certain situations when the need by the other branches for that information is so great, it overrides the secrecy of the, pres- uh, the executive branch, and so must be handed over yeah. anyway. And so the court here said, well, the need of the January 6th committee is so great that it overcomes any privilege that might exist within the yeah. executive branch. That, I think, is actually another question that should be decided yes. by the Supreme Court instead of just being yeah, I, quietly way, decided late at I night. I think this is all quite terrible. Well, let me go the, back. What the court did yeah, yesterday court was terrible? Did, yes. I mean, look, there's so much anti-Trump sentiment that people forget yes. the principle. If you go back, one of the things to the Pentagon Papers, right? This was a situation. It's 1970. Yes, it, and this is when Nixon refused two, to re- release the papers, mm-hmm. basically preserving the executive privilege as he thought by a previous Democratic administration, because he thought that this was a strong institutional interest. Um, what happens is, I agree. I think it's utterly absurd to say that the current administration, who's a bitter political enemy of the previous administration, can put itself in a position where it releases their documents while claiming privilege with respect to itself. Can I amend just one thing? I have to say, all the lower courts and the Justice Department, in which I worked, have always taken the position that, it, in, for example, in this circumstance, it's only up to President Biden. And Trump gets no seat. Yeah, and I agree. Only the sitting yeah, president. I mean, yeah, I'm, only I'm, a sitting president gets to decide. My That's, view is that they're yeah. completely wrong. Um, this is something I've said many a time, but I know that that's the situation. This is why we have to wait for the Supreme Court expansion bill to go through so, so he can be added to yeah. the Supreme Court. There's no way you're getting I, I on will, now. I will get the geriatric seat. Right? But I, I think, well, we're letting geriatrics run the whole country right yeah, now we, anyway. Right? Certainly is someone, but I think it's I, a, Excuse I, me. I have to just because it's one of my favorite lines ever. I don't know whether John has said this to your face, but he once said to me, if Richard occupied all nine seats on the Supreme Court, all the important decisions would still be 5-4. Yeah, that's <laughs> totally <laughs> true. But the point is, I, I think that they, they got this completely wrong on the dynamics. And what you need to do is to secure stability across generations. And so I would not want mm-hmm. the de- Republican successor of Biden to be able to release his particular pick. Then on the question of need, this was very similar to some of the questions with the executive, the, the, the House Representative Committee, and they took a very different position then. They said, look, you've got to show need on an individual case after you've exhausted other sources of information that are not controversial before you could make essentially a, a, a drop to get everything and everything that came out. And in this particular case, they didn't do Thousands anything. Thousands of pages. They said, we're giving you everything. Normally, my view is the correct procedure, which they'd used before, is okay, you've got all of these pages. What happens is we're not going to allow the blanket privilege, but what we would do is we require a review individually of different classes of documents, and then maybe even the individual documents, to see if the privilege applies to some of them but not to others. And the Supreme Court did not do this. This is a terrible problem. 
Donald Trump is not my favorite president. Donald Trump is a man whom I wanted to resign in January of 2017, if you recall. <laughs> but this is not what the issue is. The question is you never make sound general policies by being an anti-Trumper and using that to essentially force this thing. Right. And that's what they've done in so many areas. By the way, it should be noted that Justice Thomas dissented from yesterday's Good decision. Thing. All right. Another aspect of this January 6th issue, set of issues, a week ago, the FBI arrested a man called Stuart Rhodes, founder of what the New York Times calls the, quote, quote, the far-right Oath Keepers Militia. The FBI charged Stuart Rhodes and 10 others with, and the wording here matters, quote, seditious conspiracy, close quote. Now, the Justice Department has already prosecuted almost 300 people in connection with January 6th. But those, I think it's 275 as we talk today, those people were all charged with relatively minor offenses, mm -hmm. trespassing and so forth. Uh, that is until the arrest a week ago. Again, the, the New York Times, justice had not previously brought a sedition charge. The charge of seditious conspiracy requires prosecutors to show that at least two people agreed to the use of force to overthrow government authority or delay the execution of a U.S. law, mm -hmm. close quote. Okay. Last question, probably not a terribly complicated one, but again, it'll take a moment to set up. And the question is politics versus the administration of justice. Mm -hmm. And the argument goes as follows. The FBI is devoting a lot more time and resources to the riot on January 6th than to the riots that disrupted cities across the country mm -hmm. during the last 18 months. The January 6th committee itself is problematic. It's perfectly typical in the House for the minority leader to nominate the Republicans, in this case, to a committee. The minority leader did so, and Speaker Pelosi, a Democrat, Rejected refused them. to seat them and chose two Republicans herself, both Republicans, Liz Cheney is one, with a history of being very anti strongly anti-Trump. Okay. And so, and, and whole lines of inquiry have been simply ignored. Mm -hmm. What did the Speaker do during that day? Mm -hmm. What was the performance of the Capitol Police and so mm -hmm. forth? Against all of that, we do have a singular event in American history. Rioters broke into the capital of the United mm -hmm. States while the Congress of the United States was in session and cleared the chambers in a panic. So what do you make of all this? Is sedition? Right. Go ahead. It's, it's clearly criminal trespass by the people who came in, and they ought to be punished. But as you mentioned, there were people who broke in in situations like Seattle and Portland who've been let go. So that leads you to the sense that there's a kind of a bias. The question of whether these guys did engage in seditious libel was, to my mind, a question of fact on which you have to look. The most instructive feature about that is they didn't include a third guy, Donald Trump. They did not include... He did not say charge him with seditious libel. Yeah. <laughs> so I think, but I, I right. don't think yeah. they will be able to. That is, like, if they, mm. they, they're trying to figure out some communications between him and them. The January 6th committee yeah. is trying to do no, well, the Justice Department. The, the Justice, Justice Department. Department or the, I, that's the point. And remember, when they ran the impeachment hearing, I don't believe they charged insurrection either, did they, John? You know all. No, of they. Just, but wasn't I thought the articles of impeachment did use the word insurrection, and that but, was what you objected to. The second, the second. No, no, uh, the constant. 
they, they talked about this as a constant problem, but I don't think the particular charge. Uh, no, they what they really I, charged him with was failing to do his duty. Yes. Which was that to is What he did capital. is he did not resist the yeah. raid. He basically encouraged people to fight that for them. That's what the article said. No, it, it, did, I know not, it did not refer. It, it's essentially a failure to right. prevent rather than a, yeah. a affirmative yeah. okay. situation. Okay, so but but then, what do you make of this current so, situation? So, I, I mean, I get the idea that the protests from two summers ago now, uh, you know, in the... Uh, well, there have been riots for yeah. 18 months. During yeah. the but summer. But the, the worst took place yeah, two, the summer, two summers 2019, ago. Summer 2020. Yes, yes, yes. But that's really a matter for state and local police Is it? authorities. Not it's when you're not, attacking a federal court building. Yeah, so the Portland one, but it's not really a national FBI, uh, federal law enforcement issue. It really is a state and local issue, unless people are coordinating nationally. I think that's just a very different issue than how much resources the federal government's using to go after the January 6th plot. I have to say, um, maybe seditious uh, conspiracy is going too far, but it does seem to me, based on the facts we've seen so far, that these people are more responsible in some way than the people who are being charged with trusting, people who just sort of were listening at the, around. the lips yeah, no, to mean, Donald Trump and just that. sort of drawn into it. These, I mean, the facts look like these people had supplies of weapons stashed outside the Capitol, yeah. that they were organized, they were moving together. They actually were the ones who wanted to find Michael Pence, you know, the vice president, stop him from counting the electoral votes. But this is the way a, a Justice Department investigation works, is you start with the little people and you keep moving higher and higher. So that after this, the next stage is what Richard's calling for, is is there a connection between that group, the Oath Keepers, or other people who are, you can see them in the video, acting in a very sort of military tactics style. Right. Like people who are organized, talking on yeah. phones, and are they, were they communicating in any way with the, the Trump, well, with the next step would be the Trump campaign people yeah. like Rudy Giuliani yeah. and the people around him who were allegedly sitting out yeah, in the Willard the way, Hotel you, and John, communicating back reports, and forth. You read the newspapers and you say to yourself, oh, that's about the way the FBI ought to behave, and well, that's about the way the Justice Department okay. ought to behave. Yeah, the you, only thing, you don't say, oh, yeah, the only thing I that, you know, the only thing I think they might have gone too far is to charge these people with sedition, because that's really hard to prove. They've already violated, as Richard said, other federal laws. Sedition is rarely charged because it's very hard to prove because it, yeah, it can cross into the line of your free speech and f your, your right to believe right. what you want to believe. But let me sort of mention one thing. The, if the charge is I was trying to prevent Pence from casting the votes at counting, that would, in my view, be sedition. Right. Yeah. Because it interferes with the ordinary discharge of the government situation. The Trump allegations were, why don't you march up, say that you want to fight, and tell the people by parading outside the Capitol building. That's protected speech. Yeah, that's not enough. And that's, that's what the, you're that's paraphrasing what Donald yeah. Trump said in his speech yeah. on yeah. January 6th uh, yes. down on the now, if, that's all, if that's all they have, then they're not going to be yeah. able to get Trump or the case. Even president. And yeah, the right. investigation will just, the, the cases will stop here. Let me disagree yeah. with John on one point. All right. Um, what happened is when Merrick Garland was asked about the differential situation, he said they were willing to bomb the courthouse building when nobody was in it, right? That was the reason why we didn't do In it. Portland. In Portland. My view is if you attack a federal building, it's a federal crime. And if you attack a federal building when nobody's in it, you're trying to interfere with the course of justice because the next morning people are going to be reluctant to come. And so that's an absolute abnegation of duty uh, because of the kinds of force and the target. This is not a state law matter. It's not as though you're attacking the state courts only. And they did it for days. And that's so, one I, city okay. out of the nationwide. Okay. We're moving to the last question now, right. gentlemen. And it takes us back to the Supreme Court. Oh, one more time. 
It takes me a moment or two to set this up, but then I will turn it over to you. Warren Court of the 50s and 60s begins implementing the idea of the so-called living constitution, the idea that the court reinterprets the constitution to adjust it to changing norms, mores, and so forth. Now, six decades later, two things have happened. The first development is that originalists have finally achieved a majority on the court. By the way, we didn't come to these, but the cases that are before the court in this session, this first session yeah. with six conservatives on the court, six out of nine, if you count the chief justice, include a case in New York in which the new majority on the court is widely expected to strike down an anti-gun law, mm -hmm. claiming that it <coughs> violates the Second Amendment, mm -hmm. tuition assistance program in Maine, where the state of Maine said, you may spend state money to send your children to school, but not if it's a religious school, as judged by us, the state of Maine. And the majority is expected to look askance at that one as a violation of free exercise. All right. So as I say, the first development is that the originalists have achieved a majority. And the second is that one of the two major parties in this country has shifted to the left. Legal scholar John McGinnis, I'm sure both known to both well, of you at Northwestern. As the originalist band of justices has grown, so too have the attacks on originalism. During Justice Barrett's confirmation, Senator Markey labeled the originalist position racist, sexist, and homophobic. Many senators and commentators advocate court packing that would deprive originalists of a working majority. Wow. Now I come to the Chief Justice of the United States, John Roberts. You've already said that he's worked to hold the court together. He's an institutionalist and the Obamacare decision, he invented, as far as I can tell, I think we've all yeah, talked about right. this, he invented a rationale that permitted rationale, him to yeah. uphold Obamacare rather than overturn it, showing extreme deference to the chief executive. What would you say to Chief Justice Roberts, above all on the abortion case, but also on this New York State gun case, on the main free exercise of religion case, do you say, Mr. Chief Justice, do all you can to move this court incrementally, go slowly, holding the country together falls to you? Or do you say, Mr. Chief Justice, get the law right? Well, my view is if you say get the law right, you'll hold the country together better than if you don't. So this is one of the kind of situations. Um, I have taken on originalist grounds the view that one of the worst decisions ever written was Heller against uh, Washington. I think he's just wrong. Which is uh, the, the, uh, the, the idea that which had, Justice Scalia uh, reanimated, I think. Yeah, the I mean, the Second, the Second Amendment, Amendment does mm -hmm. not govern the District of Columbia. It's the simplest argument. Now, we could explain it later. But, but right, now what's going on is... You've got Heller. We're not going to overturn it. So the real question today is, given the level of intermediate scrutiny demanded by Heller, does the New York statute meet it? And the answer to that question is clearly no. So the question you always have to ask is, how many layers back are you prepared to go? Go back one, the statute is struck down. Go back two, you have to undo Heller. And, you know, I think Heller is as wrong in some sense as Plessy, not because I it's disagree. terrible. I think it's just wrong, but I, I think it's much more commendable. And so you do that. The main decision... 
I think, in effect, uh, it is clearly unconstitutional to give public benefits to one side and not to the other. It becomes essentially a tax on one group to benefit the other group. Because what they say is taxpayers don't want to do one, but religious taxpayers have no desire to subsidize secular schools. So I think that case should come out the other way. Now, John is going to disagree with me. Wait, but, but Richard, on the larger question, you're going case by case, which yeah, I, but you I, have I asked to about the no, Well, hold on. The larger question is the Chief Justice's approach. Does it fall to him to hold the country together, or should he? I can't quote the Latin, but the Latin, the famous phrase is... Does rebus extantibus? No, that's Star not the decisis. one I had. That isn't even the one right. I had. Do justice, though the heavens fall. Oh, oh fiat, just, yeah, fiat justitia, ruatacaira. Exactly. Thank you. Thank you. So, so, John. You tell John. I, I would, I'm a little different than Richard. Richard said, do the right thing, and that will hold the country together. May. I would say... Just do the right thing. There's no way Chief Justice Roberts or any of the justices really know what the political consequences of their decision have been. And when they have tried to hem and haw or moderate things because they're worried about political consequences, sometimes they've been grievously disastrous. The best example is, is Dred Scott, Scott, right? Dred Scott Coming is out of both case, our mouths, yeah. right? So this is a case where Chief Justice Taney thought moment. he was going to head off the Civil War, that he was going to bring, you know, was going to bring peace to the country by settling the slavery question once and for all. Or Plessy versus Ferguson, right? A case where the court was, no. right, sort of right, backing up the political views okay, of so the South. Okay, so wrong on the history about Plessy. I just think, Plessy was hold a on, non no, I'm not interested in Plessy. This is the last question. We've gone for longer than an don't hour. Don't care about politics. Which I, which, only because I'm indulging myself. I love this stuff. But here's What's the last wrong question. with you? So yes, <laughs> <laughs> there were many connections. So that one could be posed. Um, so, Richard, you've dedicated your life to a more or less, you're not an originalist. You find it has its limitations. But the notion that the Warren court was set something in motion that needed to be corrected. It was correct. And now it looks as though it could be corrected. But they may correct it in the wrong way, as always. Well, so, so what is your, and, and you're, you are, would, you would call yourself an originalist. Yeah, I would say would I'm you? an originalist, okay. and I would also say that so are you there's a lot terrific, of... This, yeah. For the next decade, yeah. things are going to go right. I think they're going to go better than they have for the last hundred years. And... Better uh, than they have for the last hundred years. Yeah, you know, pretty much since, since the, the New, New Deal, Deal legislation. Yeah. Well, and the other thing is a lot of conservatives are actually already getting worried about the court. They're already saying, was this all worth it? If they don't, if the justices don't overturn Roe, doesn't this mean the conservative movement failed? And, yeah. and I would just say, give the court time. There's only been one, as you point out, this is really the first the term first with an originalist term. majority. Let, give it 10 years, Let give it 15 breathe. years. Let them go precedent by precedent, case by case. Don't expect them to restore the 18th century constitution in one year. It's, but, not, it's going to take a long time to go back to the founding principles. We don't want to restore the 18th century oh, constitution. No. Well, it's a separate but show. let me mention to <laughs> you. Get the we differ word. on that okay, one. We differ on that. The two most dubious decisions that are absolutely necessary for the survival of the nation are Marbury and Madison, which got it wrong. Uh, see, we disagree on that and too. Uh, Martin against Hedden to the less C talking about appellate jurisdiction. Yeah, that, that case doesn't matter. Yeah, oh, it does because <laughs> Marbury is, is seven. It's eighteen oh three. Eighteen oh three. Case of created judicial review. View. Yes. Well, or found or, it or found it. Found <laughs> it have, and ambiguously yeah. so. And Martin versus Hunter Lessee is the question, do the state courts have the last word on federal legislation, which is the way the doctrine was designed. And that the court the date it, of that? that leads to a complete disintegration of the union. The date and, the date? 
the date is 1816. Oh, you're giving and him 1816. And, and you're what, giving it too much importance. Well, this is what Holmes yeah. said about it. He said, we could live without Marbury B. Madison because the federal government would still be in charge. We could not live without Martin and Hunter's lessee because the decentralization of federal constitutional law across 60 state courts is essentially creating an utter situation. That's what Story thought. It's another thing that the Holmes story, was wrong about. No, he was right about it. Story <laughs> himself said the same thing. He's wrong on every piece of statutory interpretation, but his view is, if I don't get this one right, the question falls apart. And he's like my daddy who told me a long time ago, and I'm happy to end on this note. He said, son, sometimes you have to rise above principle. Richard, no. What does that mean? That, that, <laughs> is, that is so contradictory to your entire no, approach. No, I'm just telling you. That no, I cannot I, permit that to be the well, last word out of What does that even mean? What it means is that when you're looking at this case, <laughs> if you're an originalist and you see Martin against Hunter's lessee and you realize it's wrong, and what you do is you decentralize the review of every case to 50 state courts, it's the end of the nation. No, it's not. Oh, it most certainly is. Richard, no, it's not. one sentence, and I'm going to hold you to it. <laughs> The Chief Justice of the United States is sitting right here. Yeah. Given all that we've discussed, what advice do you have for him in one sentence? Don't mess with established institutions that work. Do mess with established institutions that don't work. And you have to That's it. Out. That's your sentence. John? Oh, no, that's actually pretty good, actually. I, I, I think I agree with Richard on that. Richard Epstein <laughs> and John Yu. On this moment of surely temporary agreement, we end the program. <laughs> Thank you, gentlemen. Thanks. For Uncommon Knowledge, the Hoover Institution, and Fox Nation, I'm Peter Robinson.